following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. There was a very effective Sunday school teacher, and she was enjoying the time that she had with her young students. And like uh, very good teachers do, she was making sure that they had an opportunity to review what they had done the Sunday before. And she had done this amazing lesson on repentance and conviction and conversion, what it was like that once you realize there was sin in your life, how in the world God makes it possible for you to move forward. So she thought she would just review the lesson, and she just asked her children a question. And so using the Socratic method question and answer to put people in a frame of mind with the context. She just simply asked that question. So children, we had a wonderful lesson last week. So what did we learn that we have to do to get forgiveness for our sin? Of course, she was had certain kinds of expectations about all these ideas of repentance and what it was like to be remorseful for your, for what had happened and bad choices that got us there and temptation that we succumbed to. But one little boy raised his hand with great enthusiasm, and she says, Yes, Johnny, what do we have to do to get forgiveness for our sin? And he says, Well, we have to sin. So that was not exactly the answer she was expecting, but the entire class looked with great mystery in their face and thought, Well, actually, that's not bad, but uh, that's not exactly what the lesson was all about. So we're going to be approaching a lesson today in Matthew... uh, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13, and probably one of the more difficult chapters, and I know it's a lot to, to bite off at one time, but sometimes if you take that 30,000-foot level and take a look at the landscape, sometimes you can pick up things and make a lot more sense once you land the plane and get down into the weeds of the details. So we're going to be looking about this particular theme here of our faith and how to fortify it whenever there are frightening prophecies that lay ahead. And so that particular lesson from Mark chapter 13 gives to us not something that maybe we can be involved in, but we should be involved in, not particularly because we can understand all the details and satisfy our curiosities, but find that amazing balance that God wants us to have in dealing with what is to come. So we who are followers of Jesus Christ and believe in the truth of the Word of God, we have this very special anticipation that because we do know a general picture of what is to come, we can live our lives differently today than if we were careless and had no clue and only lived on the basis of fear rather than living on the basis of faith. But prophecy has always scratched the curiosity of human beings. It's uh, not unlike the story of the king who had his, one of his soothsayers come in and say to him, well, I want to know what the future holds and, and tell me a prophecy about my life and the things to come. So the soothsayer went through all his incantations and he said to the king, well, I have bad news with regard to prophecy and that is one of your, one of your members of your harem will die and unfortunately it is your favorite wife of all of them. So the king was quite disturbed but just as the soothsayer had predicted His favorite wife had been taken by some mysterious illness, and she died. Well, the king was not only upset because he was in mourning, but because he was also very irritated with the soothsayer's prophecy, and he was ranting about 
how he was going to take the life and get rid of this guy. And word got back to the soothsayer that he better be on his toes because the king is blaming him for the death of his favorite wife. So the king called the soothsayer in and said, prophesy for me today. When will you die? So the soothsayer had thought about this a little bit in advance, and right there at the moment he figured, well, no matter what he told the king about his own personal death, the king would say, you are wrong, and for false prophecy, you die now. And he would be killed probably right there on the spot. So he had to come up with some kind of clever answer, and so he said to the king, I do not know the day that I will die, which shocked the king at first. And then the soothsayer continued on, but I do know that after I die, the king will die three days later. (laughs) So there was no problem with regard to his safety in the future. And sometimes we play with the whole business of what prophecy is all about, but there are curiosities that can be satisfied when you are a follower of Jesus. Maybe not the details, but at least the big picture and how we then should be living our lives differently. So there was a time when Jesus Christ and his disciples were there in the city and they were remarking about this conversation they had from his teaching. And then one of the disciples who was unnamed, and he's a mysterious individual, probably is grateful with inspired scripture that his name was never inscribed in the Bible. But he says, wow, look at this magnificent building, referring to the temple built by Herod. Uh, Isn't this amazing? And, it, and, and Jesus Christ shocks all of his disciples and said, not one stone on this building will remain on top of each other. And that uh, prophecy that Jesus Christ then told about the destruction of the temple was never, ever denied or refused by the disciples. They did not say to Jesus, this cannot be. This is an impossibility. Don't say things that cannot come true. Instead, they asked the question, When will this happen, and what are the signs of when it's going to occur? That would not be too unlike if we had been taking a walk in New York before the Twin Towers came down, and we'd be looking at this magnificent structure built by man and saying, isn't this an amazing, phenomenal feat of engineering? And it was. I remember the one time that I took a trip up to the top of the Twin Towers, not that long before they were destroyed. And the person who was giving the tour said, isn't this a magnificent engineering wonder? In fact, it is one of the most marvelous wonders of the engineering world in modern times. Look what man has done. With a great deal of pride, they talk about this structure. And yet no one would have ever thought that within a matter of a few years, this would be, be nothing more than a pile of rubble. So we have a very similar situation here. It wasn't human denial about the prophecy that Jesus Christ gave, but instead is, when is this going to happen? And do we have any kind of warning that we could have in anticipation of its destruction? So every one of us is like that. We look at prophecy and we are fearful of its destruction and the destructive aspects and the power of it. And we always think myopically that it's going to happen in our lifetime because our life is the most important. Well, no one really knew that this Titus came in from the standpoint of world power, that he would come in and destroy everything that these people thought was magnificent. And even though that this destruction occurred after Christ said it would, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was the prophetic link to what Jesus Christ was saying. So if you turn prophecy on its side and look at it from another perspective, 
you could see the distances between one particular element and one greater element. But when you turn the perspective into a standpoint from chronological standpoint, you cannot see how far or how close events are. So that's what we have here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus Christ talking about things that are going to be happening soon, but at the same time how they're going to be a picture of and an anticipation of greater, more dramatic things to come in the future. So while the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, in our historical perspective, it does not mean that the coming of Jesus Christ occurred from the standpoint of the same past history. We could be in the middle between those two. And I'd like to posit to you that particular idea that in the middle of understanding prophecy and things to occur, Jesus Christ was giving one perspective that no single generation could understand. But we have the privilege of having the inspired word and realizing that there's some amazing things yet to happen when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, returns. So we have this destruction of of a destructive prophecy that Jesus Christ gives. And he does one very special thing, and that is human pride over man-made structures stands in conflict to what God wants to accomplish. The things that we think are most important in our lives because they stand for achievement done by man, those are the kinds of things that we wonder if they take away our marvel at who God is and what God is able to accomplish. That's when we have lulled ourselves to sleep and we will not be ready for what God is really going to be doing in the future. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed one generation from Jesus Christ's prophecy. But that does not mean that all that he said was completed. For Jesus Christ did not return from the time that he left and ascended from heaven until today. He still has not yet come. So for all those thousands of years in between, we still see this prophecy as something yet to come. So the question that the disciples ask is probably the same question that we will ask, and that is, well, when will these things happen? When will Christ return? Is that something going to happen in our lifetime? Is there any kind of warning? What are the signs that about to happen is this great cataclysmic prophecy that Jesus Christ gave? And more importantly, when will Jesus Christ himself return? What will be the signs of when these things are going to be happening? It's almost like the issue of prophecy. We are very curious about longevity. It's like that pastor who performed a wedding for this couple that were really not ready for a marriage. There were very few people who were there, and the pastor finished up the ceremony, and he forgot to turn off his microphone, his lapel mic. So he's in the men's room talking with some of the leaders, and at first the people in the auditorium heard everything they were laughing about in the men's room. And at first it was funny. They were saying goofy things, and the toilets were flushing. People were in the auditorium kind of giggling and laughing. And one of the pastors says, well, how long have you known this couple, Pastor? And he says, oh, not long at all. They, they're pretty new to the church. Well, I wasn't sure that they were ready for marriage. And the pastor sim- simply says, they're not ready for marriage. I don't give them six months. So when you hear that kind of statement, it was unintentionally given. The lives of people suddenly are uncomfortable. And there is that great same kind of sense when prophecy is given by Jesus. This great temple that you all think is where you meet with Almighty God, it's going to be destroyed down to its very foundation. So as we sit here today in 2015, what is it that Jesus Christ promises will happen that we should be ready for down the road? 
one of the most amazing things is that there will be deceivers. In the process from the time that Christ left this earth the first time, and before he returns again, there will some who will come in his name and give false teachings in order to just generate a reaction to themselves. They'll be all self-centered, all self-motivated. The inaccuracies of the truth will be given, and people will follow these amazing orators and amazing teachers. So Jesus Christ warns his disciples who knew personal teaching from Jesus, don't be deceived. Whenever I read this, it always strikes me as amazing because it means that I, along with many that I know, we are susceptible to false teaching. We can believe the wrong individual who teaches truth that is only partial in its trustworthiness. We are susceptible to being deceived. It is one of those amazing things, I think, that we, we have incurred and in, uh, focus in on our lives, that we need to watch out and be on guard. And this is the first indication in this chapter in 13, what the lesson that Jesus Christ wants us to learn. Not be so focused or vivid on when he returns, what this prophecy is going to be like in its details, and when is the date of it all occurring. Christ points this out. That's none of our business. No one knows. So why does he give us the prophecy? What kind of reaction does he want from us when prophecy like this is given? He simply tells us that there are going to be false teachers out there. Make sure that you have an alertness about yourself and know the truth so you can identify when a false teacher is teaching something that is not right. False message comes with regard to its signs, and the end is still to come once these false teachers make their presence known. And when I look on the landscape today, and we're always looking at the seminary on people who are teaching truth that really isn't truth, it's only partial in its truth, and the lives of these individuals who are sweeping up followers. And we know that as we compare that teaching to the Word of God, there is inaccuracy. Part of our responsibility to point those kinds of things out to our students. I'm a big admirer of my wife, Yvonne. One of the great skills that she's had in our life as a couple is when she invested so much in our children from the very earliest days. I used to admire how she would teach our children great truth about character. These are very important things and values for you to adopt because this is the right way to live. And I used to think, well, that's pretty heavy, philosophical truth, but she always put it on the lower shelf for the kids to understand. And then what was amazing, as the children grew up, she continued to teach those issues of values. And then I could see what she was doing as we talked about this whole process. And she says, now look at these characteristics that we've been learning for a long time. This is how to spot these characteristics in the lives of people that you meet, in the lives of other people. Can you see these characteristics? And she taught her children how to look for these values that we treasure so much in our home to see it in the lives of other people. And then I could see what was coming down the road because she was preparing our children to do one of the most amazing things that I think was a great gift from her as their mom to our kids. And she said, now this is how you choose your friends. And I thought this was amazing. How marvelous it was that from the earliest days, she, she had determined to teach our children values of life, teach them at the appropriate time how to spot these values in the lives of other people. And at a very critical time in their lives, how to spot the kinds of friends that you will choose to spend your time with because your friends will shape your life. And if they don't have the right character, if they don't have the right values, 
they will take you down the wrong path. It's been a marvelous thing to watch her teach our children and watch our children grow through that entire process of choosing friends well. Jesus Christ is doing something very similar. Don't be fooled by people from the superficial level. Learn your values and what genuine truth is from the truth of what Jesus Christ taught. So you will not be deceived, so that you will not be duped. In a very special kind of way, then, Jesus Christ teaches his disciples, learn these truths about truth and falsehood because persecution is on the way. In this particular lesson here in chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, Jesus Christ teaches them this truth, and he says to them, be on guard. You see the repetition of that exhortation? Just earlier he says, watch out. Now he says, be on guard. He's going to repeat the lesson that he wants his disciples to learn from the prophecy. Don't worry about the date. Don't worry about the time. No one knows that. But this is your responsibility in light of the prophecy that's coming to take place. Their pain will be their persecutor's condemnation. Christ does not say, if you follow me and you're a follower of what is true, you're going to be preserved from all pain. You're going to be preserved from all persecution. Christ does not say that. But he does promise them that for any believer who follows Jesus and they are suffering under persecution because of their faith, the act of oppression on a believer will become the condemnation of the person who does that when they come face to face with Almighty God. Now that is an amazing truth in Mark 13 that sometimes we overlook because of our curiosity about dates and events and times. And what do I know about what is about to transpire? One of the great truths of eternity is measured by the actions of those who persecute those who are believers. The gospel is the offensive stimulant of persecution. So if we promote the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ and what he means to us accurately, not just claiming it with words, not just talking about some general sense of what people assume Christians are all about, but the precision of who Jesus Christ is and what that gospel means to us is very, very important. So that will help us set aside, allay any kind of sense of anxiety when persecution comes. The persecution that many Christians will face is not about my personal pain, but in the bigger picture, God has this all under control. When Mao took over China and brought into China his version and his, his brand of communism with socialism and his own selfish desire for power and influence, hardly without any notice, he sent his soldiers in. And one of the first places that they demonstrated dominance was over the Christian influence in China. Soldiers stormed a Christian school. They tore up the place and frightened all the children. They were roughhousing the teacher, ordered all the children to go outside, under armed guard. The commander of that group saw the picture of Jesus on the wall, ordered one of his soldiers to tear it down, throw it on the ground, and broke the glass. The commander picked up that broken, damaged picture of Jesus, brought it outside, and showed it to all those little children. He threw it down on the ground face up. He ordered the children to stand in a single-file line. He ordered the children, step on the picture of this Jesus, and you will live. 
If you do not deny him today, you will die. The children are absolutely terrified. The first child walked up with trepidation, looked around at all of her classmates, stepped on the picture of Jesus with tears coming down her face. The second child came up and did the same thing, with terror on his face, looking around, not knowing what to do, but just as a young child, with a great fear, stepped on the picture of Jesus. But then the third girl walked up to the picture of Jesus with tears coming down her cheek, and she just stood there looking at the picture of Jesus, and the soldier told her, step on that picture or you will die today. That little girl, tiny little tiny little representation of humanity, but great, great faith, looked up at the commander and says, I cannot do that. He is Jesus and he is my savior. And I love him. The soldier grabbed her by the neck, threw her down on the ground, pulled out his pistol, and shot her in the head. I just don't know where my courage was when I first came across that story. To be in such an oppressive situation, simply because of my faith, I can do something very simple, humanly, to get through that horrible moment. But the gospel meant so much to her that even at the threat of death, she was not willing to deny her Jesus. And it gave tremendous courage to so many of her classmates who also died at the point of a gun that day. But there's so many people in China and so many people who died during that takeover. So many people who died because of the gospel that they believed in. And those untold stories represented by oh so precious few linger in our church history and we have to ask ourselves as men, if persecution comes, am I willing to say, I knew this was coming. I didn't know if I was going to be one of the ones who would feel the pain. But it's not about me and the pain that I would feel about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is much bigger than my life or any one single person. And you sort of get a picture here now what Jesus Christ is pushing to his disciples. The great expanse of what persecution is is so overwhelming that the greatest of human accomplishments is going to be destroyed. But don't even think about human accomplishments. What's also amazing is that this world is going to be shaken down to its very core. Even the celestial Items in the sky that we think are there forever, those too will be shaken. But our faith is even greater than that. And the power of the gospel is even more important than any of those events. So this amazing sense of the sign that is to be given, not only when will these things happen, but what is the sign? Can we have some kind of clue of what's going to be happening in the future? So we have these near destructions of the great tribulation that is to come. It's really a judgment by God to the nation of Israel for her disobedience over many, many generations. Because when a father loves his children, he will discipline them. If he postpones that discipline, he still keeps his word because sin still must be addressed. Because of Israel's great sin of her past, she will, seek, she will experience that punishment in the future. That's what's called the great tribulation in the Bible. For at least three and a half years, the nation of Israel will experience these horrible events. It also tells us that the celestial disorders 
will be so amazing it will shock the people. If you think that the Twin Towers falling down was something that would grip the world, what will happen when the celestial, celestial bodies will be shaken and people will then really lose their confidence? But those who are followers of Jesus realize that the Almighty God that they follow has absolute sovereign determination over even those great events. Christ is coming, and that's going to be even greater than the destruction or the dissolution of the world in which we know. Something pretty special about this, because Christ says, think about the fig tree. You know what's going on. It goes through the seasons. It's going to cycle in, cycle out. You may not be able to know the precise day or the moment when the fruit is ready to be picked, but you know when that season is on its way. That's what Jesus Christ is telling these individuals. Get ready from the standpoint of what it's like for us to be close to prophecy. Last week I told you about my very, very good friend Mike and how he had died of a sudden massive heart attack. You would think that God would give me a little bit of a respite from all of that because it was so traumatic for all of us who loved Mike. But this week I got a I got an email alert that another friend of mine in Michigan named Frank, who's just a great fella, we spent many times fishing together, many times trying to fix my house because he's a very talented carpenter. I got an alert in, the, in an email, so I called him right away. Frank, what are you doing in the hospital? He starts laughing. He says, well, I've got four arteries that surround my heart, just like you do. But unlike you, all four of mine are clogged up. And the doctors say I need a quadruple bypass. I knew something was wrong at the end of last year when I had those three strokes in a row. I said, Frank, you had three strokes and you never told me? I said, well, I didn't want to get all my friends worried. And he said, uh, but now I'm in the hospital and they've got a little bit of problem because my arteries are so hardened they can't clear them. So they tried to drill out the most important one and they still can't clear it. So they're still working on me. Pray for me, Bruce. But man, you got it, buddy. So I've been praying for him every day. He's been in touch with email. He's probably going to major surgery, heart surgery this week. But man, oh man, Lord. The very next day, I got another email alert that my friend Dwayne was in the hospital. So I called Dwayne and says, hey, what are you doing in the hospital? He says, well, I thought I, thought I had pneumonia. And they gave me these antibiotics, but the antibiotics didn't help. So I came into the hospital this morning because the antibiotics weren't helping. In fact, I was getting worse. So they said that I had AFib. My heart wasn't right. So they finally gave me a bunch of medication, and now my heart's fine. But now they just told me they had five cardiologists in my room. Bruce, I was thinking I had pneumonia. Now I'm, I'm in my bed in a hospital with five cardiologists talking about me like I'm not there. And I'm saying, hey, I'm the patient. What's going on? And they turned to me and they said, you need a new heart valve. And we got to do it this week. You can't even go home. Well, tomorrow he's going to an open-heart surgery to get a heart valve replaced. So I'm thinking to myself as I'm praying for these guys, I'm still praying for the widow of my good buddy, Mike, just from last week. And I'm thinking to myself, well, one thing I do know is that all three of these buddies of mine, they're all younger than me. And all of them are having heart problems. So I'm thinking, well, okay, Lord, I don't know when you're going to call me home. But I'm smart enough to figure it out here in Mark 13. I said, well, I have to study Mark 13 in light of these last two weeks. Because the trauma of events, we don't know the day or the moment when we are going to experience it. 
But God is giving us clues that no matter what happens, we are ready. That's the lesson from Mark 13. It is about being ready. That whenever God calls us home or whatever God has us to go through, whether it's persecution or seeing him face to face, we are alert, ready to go. So from this chapter of scripture, God does not say that we're going to be the kinds of individuals who are going to be privileged with a calendar or a notebook or, or, or a note on our phones, a tickler that says, okay, prophecy is about ready to be fulfilled today. It's going to happen at 3.30 p.m. We don't get that privilege. But God says, no matter what happens, because you've learned these things in the truth of the word of God, be alert, be ready, no matter what happens. The owner's going to return if you're a lease, if you're a tenant, he's going to come back and he's going to want to see how you're handling this property. He doesn't just rent it to you and never show up again. He is going to return and we do know that. So it's been a long time. So probably closer than farther. It's one of those amazing things, I think, that when we focus our attention on, are we alert to what's going on around us? I remember my buddies in college inviting me to their home for Thanksgiving. I thought, this is great. It's a lot closer than going all the way to home in California. And I, I didn't want to go all the way there. So they said, yeah, come on out to the farm. We'll have a great time. I said, sure. Said, you ever been hunting? I said, no, never been hunting. He says, would you like to learn? I said, sure. So they took me out into a field, and they set up an old, beat-up, five-gallon tin can uh, probably about 25 yards out, and they, they put a double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun in my hands, and they said, oh, point it at that can and shoot it. And I, I should have known something was wrong when all those guys and their brothers, they backed off really far. <laughs> so there's a double-barreled double 12-gauge shotgun, and when I pulled the single trigger, both barrels went off at the same time. So I went flying backwards, landed on my keister, and they were all laughing, and when the smoke cleared, we all looked, and we couldn't find the can. There was no can left. At least I hit the thing. Oh, they said, oh, this, is, this gun doesn't work very good. Well, we'll give you a better one tomorrow when we go out duck hunting. And I said, okay. So we, there were about four of us in this duck blind in the next morning, and uh, some of them had pump shotguns with three rounds. Some had double-barrel shotguns with two rounds. So we had four guys, at least uh, eight to 12 rounds and they had the ducks, the duck decoys out in the water, two Labrador retrievers raring to go. And they were all clowning around. We just were making fun of each other and goofing around. And all of a sudden, one of the guys said, ducks! And everyone got quiet. Two of these ducks came into the decoy set. They set their wings. They were just about ready to land. And somebody shouted, now! All four of us jumped up. Every round in those shotguns went off. The two Labrador retrievers took off into the water. When the smoke cleared, the only thing that was moving were those two ducks who were still hovering over the water. <laughs> and of course, all of the, all of the trash talking occurred. Hey, I was just shooting to the right to scare them over to you, and you missed. Man, oh man, you, you shoot like an old man. You can't even hold your gun up, let alone shoot right. You know how the trash talking goes among guys. I mean, it just got almost hysterical. I was a guest, so I was just laughing my head off. But I thought to myself, man, if these guys are the ones teaching me how to hunt, I'll show them how to hunt. And I put in two more rounds in my shotgun. I said, the next ducks are mine. Of course, when men fail and they get another chance to prove themselves, everybody locks in on target. Everyone is alert. 
There's no more clowning around, no more goofing around, no more checking on the fire, no more checking on the food, no more checking on the hot drinks, none of that. Everyone was ready for the next silly duck that would just venture into our realm. And a solo duck did. He answered the call. He came in, flew around. He started to lower his altitude. He set his wings to come in for a landing. Someone shouted, now. All four of us stood up. Every round from all of those shotguns fired off. And what was most amazing? Not a single one of us missed. And when those Labrador retrievers hit the water, they were swimming around looking for the duck. But all they saw was a a rain shower of feathers lightly floating down to the water. I will not forget that moment in my life when I went on my first duck hunting trip and what it's like to be alert. When you're out duck hunting, you don't think about the Wall Street Journal. When you're out duck hunting, you're not thinking about the next time you've got to replace the tires on your car. You set aside everything because when you hunt, you are alert to the game that you have set out to hunt for. Jesus is saying the same thing. I'm coming back. And if you think it's been a long time since he made that promise, that should alert us to maybe we're on the backside of the mountain of this prophecy. How are we living our lives in light of the soon coming return of Jesus? Now, if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, living an alert life is not a bad thing. Being able to spot those who are teaching falsehood Not a bad thing. Learning to realize that if we go into persecution or someone else we know goes into persecution, it's not about the moment of the life that is now facing great trauma. Because God is sealing the guilt of those who are standing on this earth as enemies, hurting the people that he loves. That's Mark chapter 13. Be alert, be ready, be observant. Live your lives without wasting your attention on the things that take away from the return of Jesus Christ. Do you love him? Are you looking forward to seeing him? Are you eager for his return? That's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 13. Have a great table talk discussion. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.